This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church, as part of the 2023 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. Thank you, Adelie, for sharing that. It's really, really good to hear. Um, I think, well, I'll refer to some things you're saying in a little bit here. But um, hey, guys, uh, I am Dayton. I'm Dayton Merrill. I work on staff in CO St. Louis. And um, I'm really thankful to get to, to speak with you guys tonight. Um, I'm, I've met nearly everybody here, but I know there's some faces here I haven't gotten a name with yet. So um, I am getting ready to leave tomorrow morning, like basically the night. So I'm leaving very, very early in the morning. So Seriously, if I haven't met you yet and you want to meet me, I would love to meet you. So introduce yourself to me before I go because I'd love to meet you before I leave. Um, I'm leaving to go see this crew of people here. I'm going to show you guys a picture of my family. I didn't get to bring them here with me, and I'm really proud of them. And so I want to show them to you. Um, this is my wife, uh, Hope. Um, we've been married for uh, nine years now. Um, and then these are my two kids, Garrison, his six, and then Oakland is four. I'm really proud of them in this picture. They were just in, um, in uh, a wedding of a friend of ours. A lot of you might know Tara, um, Tara Legrand. She was on Project last summer. She just got married a couple weeks ago. And uh, Garrison in Oakland got to be the, uh, the ring bearer and flower girl in the wedding, and they, were, they did so good. And they just look so stinking old there. I keep getting uh, to FaceTime the kids, and they just already look so much different, it feels like, and it's only been a week. So... Um, I'm excited to go see him, um, and uh, yeah, so um, before we get into it here, oh, and also I wanted to share some other fun things about my family, is we're going to have another kid, we're going to have a baby, so um, really exciting, um, we found out fairly recently, and um, yeah, so come January, we're, we're going to get to have another, another little Merrill running around, so um, hopefully you guys get to meet that baby sometime soon. Um, but uh, yeah, so tonight um, we are doing another theme training, and um, as you can, you can go back to that first slide for me, um, we're talking about sin. Um, but just a little reminder, refresher of, of what these theme trainings are. Um, Chase did an awesome job uh, kicking us off last week, um, and I'm going to remind us a little bit of what his talk was, but really why we do these theme trainings is... Um, <clears throat> what we've really done as a staff team for a year, every year really, it seems like, um, we spend hours praying, debating, slightly arguing, repenting to each other, and saying what are the main things that we really want to talk about and learn about together on the Summer Project. If we could, if we could think about the gospel and how it impacts all of life, and we think about the whole of Scripture, and we could kind of pick you know, eight, nine, whatever, we got eight or nine big rocks of like, we got to have these. This is what we, we fought for. And so what you see every week, this is, this is what we have prayed and darn near cried over to make sure that we thought well for these things. So because of that, um, uh, we really want to encourage you to, one, listen to the talks, obviously, um, but also, two, from here, go into the rest of the week with maybe some thoughts or some questions that are still ringing in your ears from the content, from the passages, and discuss them. Um, that's what you're going to do in your D groups. Uh, your, your room leaders are going to help facilitate some of these conversations and questions that we have at the end of the talk. 
But um, don't just wait for that. Talk to your friends that you're working with at Walmart or at Chick-fil-A as you're sitting by the pool. Uh, ask each other, man, how, how did that talk land on you? Like, what are you thinking from, yes, both Mark, but also even some of these things that you're learning from these talks? So I just want to commend you guys to really not let these theme trainings just be here, but really let it be a theme that carries out maybe for the rest of the week that you can be discussing and talking about. Uh, but in light of that, um, tonight we are talking about sin. It's a bit of a downer, um, but uh, I hope that you'll come with me and see that it's, it's necessary. It's a necessary downer. Um, and as Adelie was just saying, even in her story, uh, you said it was a grace of God that he revealed your sin to you. That seems like an oxymoron if you don't get it, right? If, if, you, don't, if you don't understand the importance of seeing your own sin, then you just, you're, you're never going to want it. You're never going to want to see more sin in your own life. You're going to want to kind of block your mind too. But I'm so glad you said that because it's so true. And um, that's really my hope for tonight. And um, that's really my prayer um, as I've been thinking for this talk is, uh, my prayer is that the Lord would really uh, help us to uh, have a distaste, a disgust, a disdain, a, um, an allergic reaction to sin in our lives and in the world and in the brokenness around us, um, that we would hate sin more, um, so much so that it would move us to want to root it out of ourselves as we look to the glorious love of Christ that he's given to us, that that would be our motivation. That's, that's my prayer. That's kind of the direction for the whole rest of this night. Um, but before we get into it, let me pray for us, and we'll keep going. God, you are so good and so kind, and you're holy. You're set apart, as Chase led us through last week. Um, and Lord, you're, um, you're serious. Uh, you're serious about your holiness. You're serious about your love. You're serious about your joy that you give to us. You're serious about your creation. And you're serious about uh, your story and what you're doing in this world and what you're doing in each and every one of our stories. And so, God, I pray that you would give us that same, help us to grow in that same seriousness that you have towards, uh, towards sin and towards uh, the fact that the things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And it's not okay. Um, I pray you would help us now to engage, lock in, and really um, be listening to what your spirit may have to say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so yeah, as I said, uh, Chase did an awesome job of kicking off our summer, uh, really just, um, as he said, giving a talk about God. <laughs> um, and as we saw last week, we saw so clearly and so, so well um, explained, really from scripture, we see that God is not like us. He's in his own category. He's holy. That's the best description that we can get of the fullness of God's character. <clears throat> his, his, uh, his love is not just like any other love or just a little better. It's holy love. Um, his grace is not just, it's holy grace. His justice is holy justice. His wrath is holy wrath. Um, he is holy pure. He's different, unlike us. And I, I remind us of that because if we don't see that clearly, then sin's not going to make that much sense to us. Because really what, where I want to start here tonight is uh, sin, what, what is sin? Ultimately, it's sin is anti-God. <clears throat> That's my first First kind of thought for us. We got kind of four main points we're going to go through. Um, sin is anti-God. That's what we're starting with. Next, next thought I have for us is that um, sin doesn't fit in the story. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, thirdly is that sin leads to more sin. And fourthly, sin costs more than you know. Costs more than we know. 
So, uh, first of all, sin is anti-God. Um, if we just think about, as Bergie was referencing and starting us off in word training, of, of the scriptures as a story, one grand narrative that is pieced together over 1,500 years from three different continents and such, um, when we start at the beginning of the story, many of you are familiar with the creation account and how God made the world and how God, um, in his Trinitarian self, out of love that he had for himself, birthed creation into, the, into existence. Um, he didn't need creation, but he chose to make it out of his own joy and love um, within himself. And so he made the world. If we were to read all through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we would, uh, we would see a very vivid picture of the beauty and purity and goodness and joy of what original creation was all about. Um, it's, it's interesting, um, as you read Genesis 1 and 2, over and over again, after God made something new on each day when he created something new, at the end of it, um, when, when the day passes, it says that God, God said it was good. God said it was good, and he said it was good, and it was good. Um, and then he came to making man, and he said, let's make man in our image. Um, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So he, he creates men and women to, men and women to be the pinnacle of his creation. Um, they're still creation, but he made them to be the pinnacle of his creation. And he, he gave them a job. He gave them a mission. And he gave them, uh, he gave them partnership, uh, companionship in one another. He gave them fellowship with each other. He gave them absolutely everything they could ever want and ever need. Ever need. Um, it, it's interesting. If you think about it, even in our own lives, we, we can begin to think about this a little bit more um, when you think about your favorite things, like the things that you, you know, maybe get up and get out of bed for every day, or the things that make you smile, the things that you and your friends love to do every time you get a chance to get together with them. Think about those things. Think about your favorite food. All of those desires that you have that are fulfilled in those things that you love, they didn't just come from nowhere. You didn't, you didn't think about, man, I'm going to desire something different because that's just who I, I'm going to make myself love uh, mellow mushroom pizza. I'm, I'm going to make myself love playing um, pickleball. You know, those desires came from within you, um, and they were put there by your good creator, your good God. He made good desires in each and every one of us that were meant to be fulfilled. He didn't just put these desires in us to not be fulfilled, um, but they were meant to be fulfilled. But not in just any other way that we want to, but they were meant to be fulfilled in him, in relation to him, and in the ways that he said is good for us. And if we could imagine, it's so hard to imagine a world where there is no sin, where there's no, no brokenness, uh, no selfishness, no, no uh, uh, divisiveness or, or derision between each other. Uh, but if you can imagine that, that's what the Garden of Eden and life was like in the garden. And the reason it was like that is because they were with God, the author of all goodness and all the desires that we've ever had. It was always being fulfilled. What do you want to eat? It's there. It, it's right there. Any tree you want, it's there. There was nothing that they lacked. So it's this beautiful picture of what life is like with God without any brokenness or sin. That's the starting point. It's difficult for us to imagine, but that's where we started. But as you know, Genesis 2 is just the second chapter out of 50 chapters in, in Genesis and goes to Genesis 3. And we're not going to read it quite yet. I'll, I'll come back to it here in a little bit. But Genesis 3 is, uh, is where we get the term the fall. Um, 
or maybe, maybe a better, better, better word in some ways is, is the rebellion or the rejection of God. Um, for the first time in all of uh, history of creation, creation did not obey its creator. Creation, uh, creatures, thought that they knew what was better for them, and they chose to reject and turn away from God, and that was when sin entered into the picture. Um, I've got a definition I think I would, I'd like to share that, uh, uh, of sin that I would like to work with. It's, it's from a Gospel Coalition and some other leaders and churches and pastors put together this thing called the New City Catechism. Basically, a catechism is a collection of uh, re- recited uh, truths of the Christian faith that the church uh, has recited back and forth to itself to remember what's true about Christianity and about our God and the gospel. This is what they came up with for sin. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So again, I recognize sin is not a new term for us. Um, Sin is not a new thing. And maybe as you look at that definition, you're like, oh yeah, it makes sense. I've seen that before. I I get it. I see it in scripture. but I think it's really helpful for us to look at that and, and, and understand that sin is an active rejecting um, or ignoring of God in the world he created, um, which I hope you can just stop and recognize, and we'll, we'll get there here tonight too, how absurd that is, just how stupid and idiotic it is to reject the creator of the universe, and yet we do it all the time, um, and yet uh, we have given into it um, over and over and over again as though it's just kind of normal. Sin is actively crossing the lines God has laid down for us, but it's also uh, the unintentional things that we do that are also just against him and his law. Um, So here's the thing to think about too, is every sin is a personal offense against God. Um, When you... um, we, this is hard for us to get. We think about law a lot of times. We don't think about personal offense against God when we think about the law. When you, um, if you're like me, sometimes I go a little too fast when I'm driving, okay? I've broken the law of speeding more times than I t- care to admit, probably. Um, um, or you take any other law that you think maybe it might be a little trivial or whatever, or any, any law in our, you know, in our country. When we break the law... The president, the judge, the police, whoever it is, none of them are personally offending. Oh, no, certain things, if you do, you might be personally offending somebody. But a lot of those traffic laws, whatever, you're not personally offending the person who made those laws, right? We have not personally offended the founding fathers of the United States and who wrote whatever, the laws of the beginning. I'm not good at government stuff. So. But we're not personally offending those people, right? It's just these impersonal laws that have been set up and for the good of us, and for the good of our, our country, and for people. But you haven't personally offended anybody. The difference with God is that every single law you break, every single transgression, or that line you transgress, that God has said, this is not good for you, don't do it. Every single time we do that, it's personally offensive to God. You know why? It's because his law is not arbitrary or just random, but it's rooted in his character and in the way he has made things to be. It's rooted in his character. Um, the character that Chase explained to us last week, his holiness, his goodness, his love, his purity. So when we go against what he said, 
We, we are personally offending the God who made us and who keeps us alive and keeps our heart beating every second. <clears throat> so sin is anti-God. It's totally against him. And we, we don't think this, um, but uh, David gets it in Psalm 50, 51. If you're familiar with David, King David, he's a great king, but he made a big mistake. But not just one, he did a few mistakes. He committed adultery, and in the act, he tried to cover it, and so he ends up getting the, his, the woman he had committed adultery with. Her husband uh, basically murders him, and then he tries to lie and cover it all up. But it's interesting, when, when finally he's confronted by um, a fellow believer in the Lord, um, he finally comes to his senses and he, and he repents. And in Psalm 51, it's, it's his whole prayer of repentance. And in Psalm 51, 4, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's interesting. You read that story, it's very clear that David sinned against some people. <laughs> he sinned against Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with. He sinned against Uriah, her husband that he murdered. He sinned against all of Israel and covering up this great offense that he was supposed to be the upstanding example to the whole kingdom. But he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is David saying, ah, I don't care about these people. No, 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 he gets it. <laughs> he gets it and he's saying that no, really what it all comes down to is, Lord, my sin is against you. Um, my sin is anti-you. Um, so um, I think it's important for us to understand that our sin at its core is anti-God. We don't, we don't often think that, but that's what we're doing. Um, you know, in other words, too, when we, when we break, when we sin, we're always breaking the first commandment. Remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other gods. You should not worship any other god above me. You should have no other gods above me. Or, or the way Jesus uh, sums up the law in the New Testament, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every time we sin, ultimately, it is a different love that we have, we have loved something uh, more than or alternate to God. And therefore, we act upon that thing. Because... If we truly love God, we wouldn't go after something he says is not good for us and is out of bounds. So every time we sin, we're actually breaking the first commandment. Um, last thing I'll say about this before we move to the next point is uh, me and James got to go out to, um, uh, on evangelism training on, on Friday and share. Um, we just got to talk with one guy. His name is Ron, an older man. Um, I, I think he's a believer. I'm not sure. Um, but um, when he was talking about his understanding of Christianity, we just asked him, hey, well, how would you describe what it means to be a Christian if, if you were to, um, to talk to somebody who's not a Christian? And he said, you know, my dad always told me, you know, there's big sins and there's little sins. He said, I know people say there's not really big sins. He said, there is. He said, the goal is just keep them both at a minimum. And uh, what was interesting is I get what he's saying. And I think really as Christians, we probably should keep our saying to a minimum. Absolutely, right? Um, but what was interesting was behind it was there's this, this kind of uh, feeling that it's really not, it's just kind of like, let's just cool it. Like, let's just not go crazy out there. Um, and it failed to acknowledge that every sin, it does not matter if you are, uh, like Adelie's story, squeaky clean growing up and super high moral, or you, you know, are the most heinous sinner and wicked you know, hellion out there. It does not matter because at the end of the day, we are all constantly just building uh, this. The Bible would describe as sin in a lot of ways as, as our feces, our crap. Um, so what, what's it matter if, you, if your pile is about 10, <laughs> 10 feet high versus it's still crap. It's still anti-God. It has nothing to do with loving him at all. And so 
while I understand his sentiment, uh, I have to disagree with my friend Ron um, on the beach, and I think we should all disagree with that. The second thought I have for us here is sin doesn't fit in the story. This is, this is one of the things that I, I feel like I've been really resonating with the most. If you were to look at uh, Genesis 3.1, go ahead and put that verse up here. So Genesis 1 through 2, beautiful picture of God's new creation is wonderful. Genesis 3.1, read this with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, God, that the Lord God had made. Okay, you know, I, we haven't, I didn't read Genesis 1 through 2. But if you read it, I, I'm losing some of the effect here, but it is, it is so random. No other creatures other than, than Adam and Eve have been talking. Um, out of nowhere, there's a serpent um, that is speaking to the woman. And out of nowhere, uh, the author of Genesis, Moses, um, is talking about some serpent who just came out of nowhere. We have no idea where he came from. Was he just chilling in the garden all this time? What, you know, what happened? But the point of this here, and, and I think there's some intentionality from the author here, is that it's, it's not really supposed to make a whole lot of sense. Um, and I think there's an abrupt thing that's going on here because it's meant to jerk us and to see like, okay, what's, what's happening here? And what we're about to see here is that what we're gonna read does not fit in this story. It does not belong. That serpent did not belong in this garden. I'll keep reading. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired, desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Um, so what happened here in this, in this part of the story is there's an abrupt change. People who were living in perfect unity with God in the garden, uh, enjoying intimacy with the Lord and intimacy with each other, and were working the garden and carrying out what they were made to do, all of a sudden, that begins to change. And that begins to change when they begin to doubt the goodness of God and wonder if life might be better when they're at the center of the, of the story. And wonder if they might be better, uh, better gods than God himself. Um, so many of us are familiar with this story, but we, we, uh, and we just simply know that sin and brokenness is just a reality that we're living in. We know that this is, this is the fall and this is the beginning of sin throughout the rest of Scripture, and frankly, the sin that we still are kind of swimming in, in, in our part of in this world. Um, we know that brokenness starts from here. If we were to read the rest of chapter 3 in Genesis, we would see the, the curse that God pronounces on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent. Um, and we are living in the reality of that curse today. But, but what I want to call our attention to a little bit is, um, is to see that uh, it doesn't fit the story and you shouldn't act like it belongs. What I mean by that is a lot of times when we, when we encounter the realities of this world, uh, we've grown so callous and so used to the reality of sin that we just kind of have a, 
a ho-hum attitude about it, or um, a kind of a, maybe the phrase is, it is what it is, you know, it's what it is. Um, my call to Christians is that that really has no place in a Christian's life. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, getting to be on campus and getting to serve with Camp Sourage for several years now, um, I've heard countless heartbreaking stories from college students. Um, you know, just all kinds of terrible things. All kinds of terrible sins that have been committed against people, against students, against people like you. And all kinds of countless terrible sins that, sin, uh, that students have committed. And um, I'll sit with them and talk to them and they'll tell me stories of, uh, of abuse, of divorce, um, of loss, of death, um, of, of all kinds of brokenness. And so many times after, I, I'd say, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't believe, I'm, that had to have been miserable. And you know how many times, most of the time, ah, it's okay. You know, it's no big deal. And I get it, you know, in social settings, it's like, they don't know me like that. They're just going to break down and cry with me right there. But I think it reveals something that we all kind of are just, just so used to. Uh, it's, it is what it is, you know, can't do anything about it. And you're right, we, we can't, so to speak, do anything about it. But the problem with, with, with this is, it, to me, and according to scripture, I think, is that we've grown so used to it and we've given it a seat at the table. We've, we've rationalized and normalized sin as if it's meant to be part of the story. Now, I, roll with me here. I, I know it is part of the story, so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is that it never should have been part of the story. Uh, it is not right that Adam and Eve sinned. It is not right that you have been sinned against. It is not okay the things that have happened. It, as Chase just said, it is not okay that women on this project are feeling uncomfortable and approached by men who are, have nefarious you know, mentality and what they're, whatever they're doing. That is it's not okay. Um, one of the most, uh, in, a, in a week, in about 10 days, I guess, It'll be three years since my sister passed away. And uh, she had cancer for two and a half years, and um, I got to speak at her, um, her funeral. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think one of the big things that was so helpful for me to hear when we were mourning is when my friends told me, uh, it's not supposed to be this way. And uh, as odd as that is, it was so comforting to know and remember that it was never supposed to be this way. Death, the result of sin, it just wasn't supposed to be this way. And praise God, uh, she, she had her sin problem taken care of by her Savior, but um, the reality is that sin and its effects is not supposed to be here. It doesn't belong. Um, sorry, I keep messing with this. I'm not good with the handless or cordless, whatever. Um, can you go to the next? Um, yes. Sin isn't supposed to make sense. It shouldn't be normalized. Our reaction to sin should be shock and appall. Um, let me read to you real quick um, from Jeremiah. I'll just summarize it, actually. Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13. Uh, this is God speaking to his people. And this is what he says. He says, uh, what I'm about ready to tell you, you should be shocked and appalled, and you should be utterly desolate at what I'm about ready to describe to you. He says after that, he says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, um, 
the fountain of living waters, and they've gone and dug uh, cisterns for themselves, which are just huge water containers that were just collecting rainwater. <clears throat> but they're not just anything, they're, they're broken. And what he was saying in this is saying, they, they, they've done two wicked things. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've gone to broken cisterns. It, imagine how absurd it would be if you saw a people group who had an unending cool spring, this huge spring that just keeps welling up, never-ending, unending supply of clean, cold water, and yet they keep going to it and ignoring that and going and trying to collect rainwater in this dirty, uh, disease-infested pool that's not actually even working. You would see it and you would say, there's something wrong with these people. This is absurd. And you would be right. And that is God's point in this verse. He's saying, it is absolutely absurd. There's an illustration that I think was helpful to even think about, about this, of, of for us to kind of snap to a reality of what is going on around us. There's a, um, Tim Keller had shared this quote from this guy named David Foster Wallace, and I'll, I'll just share it with you real quick. This is illustration. He says, there, there are these two young fish, so he's talking about fish. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, what the heck is water? And uh, his point with that is, uh, we're so used to the things that we're just swimming in, these two fish were just used to like, they don't even know what they're swimming, they don't even know what the reality is that they're, they're swimming in. And, and I think that's a really pointed example for us to really see, we're so used to the sin and brokenness around us that we might just be like, what's the big deal? Like, you are so inundated with the next news thing. I, it, it's insane how much news you guys take in, whether it's just be social news just from your friends or the next headline or the next whatever celebrity or influencer you're following that's telling you something. There's so much stuff coming at you all the time that you don't have enough time to digest what's actually good and what's actually bad and to sort through and be able to have like reasonable thoughts about like, no, that's messed up. We don't, we don't, we're not able to stop and we're so numb to it. And, and uh, we're just left saying it is what it is. But the Christian's response towards sins actually should be, uh, should be something different. Uh, Matthew 5, 4. This is when uh, the Beatitudes, maybe you've heard of that. It's at the beginning of Jesus' like big time sermon. This is one of the first things he says. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. At face value, you're like, what the heck? Why would that be a good thing to mourn? That sounds really terrible. But what he's saying is, blessed are those who mourn their sin and the brokenness and realities of sin in this world because they get it. They get the fact that it's not supposed to be like this and they shouldn't be like that. And they want God and his kingdom to come to bear right here and right now. They're blessed. They're happy. Those are good. Those people are are experiencing a blessed life if they can mourn and, and mourn the realities of brokenness. Or Psalm 119, 136, David says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Like, man, what if we actually lived like that? Like, when we saw the brokenness on the news, or we saw the brokenness on our campuses, they actually, you would actually stop and really think about it. Like, man, that is so sad. It is so sad the way that fraternity is acting on our campus. Like, it is so sad to see the, how these athletes are building their lives around something that will never fulfill them. It is so sad, you fill in the blank. What if we wept more about that because we see, man, this just is not the way it's supposed to be. 
It doesn't fit in God's story. It doesn't fit in our current story. It doesn't fit in your personal story. I'm just going to list off a few of the ways that we know this, but we just kind of let it gloss over. We normalize things all the time. Divorce. Divorce is normalized. So we might get into a relationship or maybe in a marriage someday anticipating that the other person may grow tired of us, so we hedge our bets and maybe get what we can out of it while, we la- while it lasts. This is why there's a growing norm, even in the church, for people to live together and test drive marriage before they make a covenant. A coveting and envy is normalized. Man, it's normalized. So we jump in with the rest of culture and subscribe to every influencer who has the body we want, the clothes we want, the car, the computer, the gaming system or gaming account, the relationships, vacations, and lifestyle we want. We just jump in and we don't even think about, maybe this is actually breaking the 10th commandment, coveting. Pornography and masturbation is normalized. So we just expect it and tell ourselves it's just acceptable and a normal human urge that needs to be fulfilled. We just need to keep it at a respectable level and not partake in it too often. Gossip and slander, it's normalized. So we give ourselves license to talk, tweet, snap, or post poorly about celebrities, politicians, athletes, teachers, parents, classmates, and friends instead of showing them the honor and respect as a fellow image bearer of God. We just follow suit. It's just normal. Love of self over God and others is normalized. So we use our time, our resources, our money to serve whatever craving, comfort, or desire we have. We use our money to suit whatever what we want rather than recognizing we are stewards of God's resources. We bet money on sports. We buy the extra pair of shoes we don't really need. We buy the newest video games or tech or whatever, but we don't give to the Lord what actually he's said is good for us to do, and we don't look to others' needs. These are just examples of what happens when we just follow suit with what is going on around us. Um, We could go on and on of the ways that we rationalize and normalize sin and brokenness in our world rather than call a spade a spade and say, no, that's, that's sin. That does not belong in my life or anyone's life. <clears throat> Thirdly, sin only leads to more sin. If we continue uh, the rest of the story, sin only leads to more sin. Um, I think I got maybe another one with like uh, Genesis 4 to beyond. Yeah, yeah. It's Genesis 4 to <laughs> the rest of the Bible. Um, we see this. So it starts in Genesis 4. Um, maybe some of you guys know this story, but um, right away, after Adam and Eve are clothed and the Lord takes care of them and um, gives them some hope uh, and makes some promises to them that one day the serpent will be crushed, as we learned about earlier this summer, um, Adam and Eve have two kids and one of them murders the other one. Sin leads to more sin. Um, it doesn't stop there. If you go to Genesis 6, um, the Lord sees increasing corruption on the earth. The Lord saw that wick- the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> it's like the most superlative like, description of how terrible it was. Like every thought of the intention of his heart was only evil continually. Sin leads to more sin. It just keeps breeding more and more. If you were to read all of Romans 1, you'd see a very vivid and uh, scary picture of what happens when people give themselves over to sin or when they um, deny God as God, even though they've been made fully aware of who he is. Um, their lack of thankfulness leads to, um, you, you don't even think about that. Like We don't think about lack of thankfulness as being a big time sin. But Romans 1 makes it very clear when we, when we do not give God honor and give him thanks, 
it leads to even more and more debased sin. I'm not going to read through it right now, but that's one that I would definitely check out just to see how sin begets more sin. Um, and, you know, sin, uh, it leads to more sin because it's, uh, it's enjoyable. What I mean by that is I think one of the big things that we all experience and feel, and really, some of this is like, well, yeah, why the heck is there so much sin in this world? It's like it's so stupid, as Dayton's describing. It's like dumb. Why are we doing this? Well, it's because sin's sneaky, and the serpent was sneaky, and the world is sneaky in what it promises us. Sin, as uh, I think Bergie was saying, it always overpromises and underdelivers, <clears throat> and it always demands you give more. You can bank on it. It always overpromises and always underdelivers, underdelivers, and it always requires you to give more. Um, <clears throat> sin tastes good. <clears throat> Excuse me but it always leaves you thirsty for more. Uh, there are very many parallels between all different kinds of uh, addictive uh, habits in this world and sin that, um, you know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the reality that drug abuse um, starts very simply, um, but then uh, it requires you, in order to get the same kind of a high, to keep going back to it, but a little bit more, a little bit more. This is the simple principle of what happens with that. And I think there really is a lot of truth and parallel to um, sin. Romans 6.16 describes sin as, as a slave master. I don't know if I have this up there. I don't have it. Do I? Yeah, I'll just read it to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? <clears throat> Um, sin won't quit sin will entice you and will keep calling you back and it will make it as tasty as it can look the next time um, so uh, <clears throat> excuse me and, and as I shared even earlier too so much of our sin that we, we give into that, that sin leads to more sin it doesn't really start out of a bad desire. Our, our, um, what, when we give in to sin, it's not because we just are at our utter core have totally messed up desires. Um, we do. But the, the, it's really not so much the desire as the direction of the desire. As I described earlier, God made us to have these desires we have. And yet the problem is we go in the wrong direction. So we long for true deep intimacy. Um, we long for love. We long to be loved and to love. And it's a good God-made desire meant to be fulfilled in marriage. We may get into a dating relationship with a guy or girl <clears throat> because we want this relationship. We want that kind of intimacy and love. And in your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, you, you may grow tempted to, to emotionally or physically relate to that other as if you're married in one flesh. So you're going to grow tempted to want to get uh, what you want out of that relationship in your own way and not maybe in the way that God has designed it that to, to be reserved in, in marriage. <clears throat> you may give in to that temptation. And although you're ashamed that you broke God's good boundaries for you and that other person, you enjoyed the physical intimacy or the emotional comfort that you got from that boyfriend or girlfriend. <clears throat> so uh, you, you, shouldn't go, you know you shouldn't go back to do the same thing. And you know you should repent and find grace and forgiveness. So, you know, you, you know that maybe this isn't the right way to go. But yet, man, you're afraid to confess to your friends who love you and love Jesus. 
So instead you try to avoid any situations where they might ask you about how things are going in your relationship, where they, they ask any questions about the relationship. You lie and you might say, everything's going fine. Then you subtly begin to distance yourself from those friends and begin to isolate. I'm, I'm sharing just a hypothetical situation that sadly I've seen play out many times over my closest friends and just students over the years. You begin to see that Maybe, maybe when we misplace our desires that we begin to give in to sin, and rather than turning to the Lord and repenting of that sin, we're tempted to just kind of keep it going and, and not give in um, and, and, not, uh, and not repent and turn from it, and it just leads to more sin. Uh, this, another thing is we long to be successful, which is a good God-made desire meant to be fulfilled in carrying out his calling for us. So you're a college student who knows that academic success is uh, going to lead to career success. You begin to love success so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Uh, your teachers expect you to do more work, and you found it easier and less time-consuming and maybe more effective to use answers that aren't yours, that you found online. What's the big deal? Everybody does it. You get good grades, and no one knows you cheated, or everyone else is cheating, so it's okay. You continue this pattern because it's efficient, and it's normal, and you like being seen as successful and the rewards it gives you. You grow a habit of cutting corners in order to get to the success you long for, and that carries on to your workplace. You'll do whatever it takes in order to get that and keep that success. No, person rules, uh, no personal rules will get in your way, and you, know, you can just carry this on. I, I know I'm telling hypotheticals, but this is exactly how it begins to happen in our lives and in others' lives, and that's how people end up will do anything to preserve the success that they've got because they long for it, but they're, they're just giving into sin after sin. I can go on and on and on of different ways that we do this and the ways that we sin leads to more and more sin. And so we begin to see ultimately that sin doesn't stay tame. It doesn't stay as a little pet that you can keep under your control. Um, in fact, in Proverbs 7, 6 through 27, which I'll have up here in a second, not the whole thing, but... Um, uh, Proverbs is written from a father's perspective to his son, and he's, he's telling him what's wise and what's foolish, and he's describing what happens when, when, uh, when a, a man who is not wise gives in to sin, and particularly the sin of adultery. And he talks about in there, he says, can a man hold fire close to his chest and not get burned? Um, think about that picture. It's like, no, none of you would do that because you're smart. You know not to do But he's saying, that is exactly what we're doing when we keep playing with sin, like we can control it, like we can keep it like a pet, like, like we have control over it. The reality is that it is a slave master over anyone who gives itself to it. You can think as long as you want that you've got control, but you don't. I can tell you, you don't. I don't. I've done everything in the book to try to think that I can. I've lied. I've covered up sin so many times, and you can't. Um, Sin is more costly than you know. These are kind of my, one of my last, last points for us here. Sin's more costly than you know. As I said in, in um, that Proverbs 7, 6 to 27, the culmination of that story, this parable of, of uh, this man who goes down the road of a, of a prostitute's house, um, she is, she's after him. She keeps coming to him, and she tells him, hey, my husband's away. He won't be here till the new moon, and I've got everything set up and ready for us. Come, come to my bed. It's all, it's perfectly set up with perfumes and it's ready for us. So this guy, he gives in to the temptation and, and what he doesn't know is that it's only leading him to her, his death. Uh, and later on in that text, it describes that her bed is the bed of, of Sheol, which really is just hell. 
the picture that this, this father to his son in Proverbs is saying is, don't go down that road because it only leads to hell. Proverbs 14.21 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. <clears throat> it seems right, like everybody else, like, what, it's no big deal. Like, it seems right, but its way is the way that ends in death. You know, I, I just threw up some of these references here. I think it'd be good to check out later. But Isaiah 64, 6, even here, too, we, we see that uh, God describes our sin. Even our, our best deeds um, are like filthy garments. So even, even when we do our best things uh, apart, from, apart from the Lord, that they're just they're worthless. Um, and they, they add nothing to, our, um, to us. Um, Romans 6, 23, many of you are familiar with that verse. But the wages of sin is death. Um, the cost is death. It costs everything. Matthew 8, 12, all those Matthew chapters or passages, um, all of those are just talking about how often Jesus talks, talks about uh, that uh, sin leads to uh, being cast out from the Lord's presence. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, great pain and sorrow that will never end for all of eternity. He says it ends not just in, in death, but hell, the fullest expression of death, the fullest expression of the separation of God. Um, so let me, let me put this all together here um, from what we know from Scripture. We know that there was no, um, so this last passage here is Isaiah 53. Um, it costs everything. Um, it costs far more than we know, and it, and it actually costs, costs everything. What I mean by that is that um, it's either going to cost you everything in death and in hell, or it's going to cost God everything. It's going to cost Jesus everything. Um, from Isaiah chapter 53, we read that um, Jesus, um, which this is in the Old Testament, and it's a prophecy of, of the, the, um, the servant, the Lord's servant that was going to come and was going to do these things, and it's, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do. It's amazing because it's written in past tense. That's a pretty cool thing from Scripture. It's so sure that it wrote it in past tense. Here it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So what's, what's going on here? We, we've been talking about this. We know that Jesus died on the cross. We know what he did, that he died for sin, right? Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, for our sake, he, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. God made him sin so that anyone would become the righteous, righteousness of God. Here's something to think about. Um, it's an interesting question to really consider. It, was there any other way that God could have taken care of our sin problem? Like, really, like, he's God, right? So surely he could have done something differently. Surely he could have, you know, maybe there was, maybe not 10,000 bulls, but maybe 10 billion bulls would pay for the blood uh, of that, we, that we've accrued in our sin. But the reality is this, is that Jesus asked that same question, Lord, can this cut pat, like, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, 
um, not out of um, unwillingness to obey, but out of deep anguish of the reality of what was coming ahead of him, he asked the same question. Lord, is there no other way? Can you let this cup, this cup that I have to drink, will you let it pass? But there was no other way. God didn't let the cup pass. He, he allowed Jesus to drink the whole dang thing. He had him drink the whole cup of his wrath. What does this tell us about the cost of sin? What does this tell us about the cost? It tells us <clears throat> that your sin costs the death of the author of life. That there was nothing more that Jesus, God in the flesh, could have given for you I mean, there's nothing left. He had nothing left to give you but himself. He gave you everything. The Father gave his most prized possession from all eternity past. All eternity past. Think about that. So that you could have life and not have to die the death that you deserve. I want you to read this, uh, this description of what the cost was like for Jesus from John Piper. It says this, <clears throat> in order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan it way ahead of time because he couldn't die, immortal. He didn't have any body, and yet he wanted to die for you. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so that he could get hungry and get weary and get sore feet. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus as a baby is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. <clears throat> the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whips. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed fleshy cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on it. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. I just plead with you, when you're reading the Bible and you read Water Toy, run-of-the-mill texts like this that are familiar, he loved you and gave himself for you, you wouldn't go too fast over it. Linger, linger, linger and plead with him that your eyes would be opened. Um, that's a vivid picture of what it costs, of what your sin costs the Lord, of what our sin costs the Lord. Um, the cost of our sin is the death of the author of life. <clears throat> But the good news is that he did it because he loves you. Mark 2, uh, 16, I believe, says he came not to call the righteous but the sinners, as we were studying earlier this week. He came to call those who know that they need to be forgiven, that they need a Savior. He came for those who have received the grace that Adelie talked about of having their eyes opened to see their sin, to see it, and to know that it doesn't belong. 
So my, my last thought for us here, a uh, little, little story to kind of illustrate this. My, my last thought and kind of question for us is like, okay, Whew, that's good news, right? Very good news that we are not left in our sin, not left to be slaves to sin any longer. But the problem is, man, okay, I'm still tempted to go back to this slave master, even though I've tasted the goodness and grace of God. It makes zero sense. I get it, Dayton. I get it. We all get it. It's stupid. <laughs> <clears throat> But I'm weak. I'm prone to wander, as the song says. What do we do? How do we fight this? Do we just uh, stop? Stop it. Stop sinning. Is that it? Um, there's a story that, um, again, uh, Pastor Tim Keller um, shared in one of his sermons one time that I thought was really helpful. It's from uh, the story of uh, Odysseus. Uh, some of you guys, I've never read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Maybe you guys did for school. I didn't go to school like that. Um, but... Uh, the story of Odysseus and the sirens. So he's got this, it's like a series of different like crazy little gods and demigods that he fights or whatever. And, but on the end, he's, he's traveling home and they're passing by this place, the island of, of, of the sirens. And the sirens um, were uh, basically these, um, these beings that were beautiful and they had beautiful voices. Um, but what happened was uh, ships would sail past this island and they would be drawn in by the beauty of these, these sirens and their, their songs that they're singing to them and lured them in only to be shipwrecked. And it turns out these sirens are actually like, it's kind of weird if you see pictures. I think there's a, you can go to the, you can hardly see it, but this is like of ancient Greek whatever. Um, and uh, those are like the sirens. They're like half birds and they eat the people. They're like cannibals. So is a, is a danger. They, they, they are... Uh, have sinister intent in reeling these people in. But their song is so beautiful, and people want to hear it. Um, they're just drawn into it, so much so that it leads them to their death. So um, Odysseus, or something they call him Ulysses, um, he's heard about this legend. He's like, I want to hear this song, but I don't want to die. <laughs> so what he does is he tells his whole crew, they like fill their ears with, beer, with beeswax, and they can't hear the sirens at all. And they tie him, he, tell, he tells them, tie me to the mast of the ship, so I can hear the song, but then we won't die. So I want to enjoy the song. So he does, and this is what happens. They sit beside the ocean. Oh, um, Odysseus wants to hear that famous song and still survive. He orders his sailors to tie him firmly to the ship's mast. When he is firmly tied and his men have the beeswax in their ears, they row the ship alongside the island. Then Odysseus hears the magical song of the sirens as it floats over the summertime waters. Odysseus. Bravest of heroes, draw near to us on our green island. Odysseus, we'll teach you wisdom. We'll give you love, sweeter than honey. The songs we sing soothe away sorrow. And in our arms, you will be happy. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, the songs we sing will bring you peace. And when he hears the words and the music, the song enchants, uh, enchants Odysseus' heart. He longs to plunge into the waters and to swim to the island. He wants to embrace the sirens. He strains against the bonds which hold him to the ship's mast. He strains so hard that the bonds cut deeply into his flesh of his back and arms. Nodding and scowling at his ear-plugged men, he urges them to free him. He's yelling, let me go, let me go. Expecting this reaction, the men row harder and harder with their oars. And they finally make it away, and he survives. But nearly goes mad. He wants to kind of taste it, but doesn't want to die. He just kind of wants a little taste, but doesn't want to 
you know, be eaten by these things. So that's one, one approach that this man had to the sirens. But listen to this other one. There's a guy named Jason and his men, the fabled Argonauts, who escaped death on the rocks of the sirens. This is how they did it. Jason, however, he had a lute, a stringed instrument like a guitar, a lute player by the name of Orpheus, who traveled with him. Orpheus' lute playing had the ability to totally captivate the hearers. As long as he played, anyone who listened to his siren or to his music only heard his music. As soon as Jason's ship came near to the island of the, of the sirens, the crew assembled on deck in the shadow of the mast, and Orpheus began playing his enchanting melodies. The siren songs were ignored because Jason and his men were captivated by the beautiful music of Orpheus. So Jason and his sailors passed safely away by the sirens and continued on their journey. Jason chose to listen to a sweeter song. Rather than bracing himself and just trying to get as close as he can to the, to the sirens and taunting and tempting himself and just trying to see if he could bear it through it and nearly losing his mind, he knew that there was a better way just to listen to the sweeter song, to look to a different masterpiece, a different beauty. Is that not our theme verse? Let us throw off every sin that entangles and trips us up. Let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and bore its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, our only remedy against sin is the sweeter song of Jesus. And, and the joy that was set before Jesus was you. Um, that's the only reason he goes to the cross. That's our only true remedy to sin, is to love him and see him as more beautiful than the sins that so easily entangle and trip us up and threaten to kill us. So um, listen to the sweeter song. Um, let me pray for us, and then what I'm going to do is we're going to just put some questions up there. You can take pictures of it, or we'll send them out in the group me too. Um, right, for right now, you don't have to discuss it. We'll just take a few minutes while the uh, worship team's coming up, and just ponder on them. Um, so let me pray for us first. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that sin doesn't win. We thank you so much that death does not have the final say. We thank you so much that... Um, Jesus, you are the victor and that you were willing to pay the cost and that you didn't hold back because if you did, we'd have no hope, no joy, no, no life and we would only experience the death that we deserve. But Lord, it's your grace that has come in. I pray, God, that you would give us a greater distaste for sin. I, I have no idea what it is, what we're all struggling with, what we're most tempted to, Lord, but I pray that you would turn that so sour in our minds and our hearts, God. Please make us see the disgusting, real truth about it. Like those sirens, they were after their throats. They wanted to kill them. They wanted to eat them. I pray, Lord, we would see that our sin is that, our covetousness, our lust, whatever we fill in the blank with, Lord, help us to see that it is after our lives and to see that true life and true joy is found only in you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2023 Summer Training Project, hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church. 
Please feel free to share this message with others, but don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.